Good morning. Lovely to be able to come and share the word with you. The word of Ecclesiastes. It's actually the conclusion of the whole matter is what we're looking at today. So please turn with me for the last time together to the book of Ecclesiastes. I hope it's not the last time you ever turn to the book of Ecclesiastes, but uh, it will be in this uh, formal setting here. Someone has said, and I couldn't find out who it was, but someone has said that life is like a school, except that sometimes you don't know what the lessons are until you've failed the examination. And I think that's what the book of Ecclesiastes has been like for me. It's what Solomon has done, has shown me, and I'm hoping shown you, the failings of living under the sun, under the S-U-N, living a life without God. And he's done that, I believe, so we can learn the lessons we need to learn about living life under the S-O-N, under the Son, under the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Peter entitled this series on our webpage, he entitled it, Under the Sun, question mark, and then S-U-N, and under the S-O-N, question mark. That is the, the series title that is on our webpage. And now we've come to the point that that question must now be answered. These last verses demand an answer from you. Are you living under the sun without God in your life or are you living your life completely under the lordship of our Lord Jesus Christ? Are you under the S-U-N without God or are you under the S-O-N, the Lord Jesus Christ? And these verses demand an answer. You're going to have to answer one way or the other. Yes, life is a school. And we must humble ourselves and we must learn all we can as we go through life. But I want to point out to you this morning that our textbook, uh, the textbook is not life itself. That's not the textbook to learning what life is all about. Our textbook is the Bible. This is what we learn and our Holy Spirit is the teacher. And so this is what's been happening through the book of Ecclesiastes. But before we get to verse 9 of chapter 12, we're only doing uh, from 9 to the end for 14, I need to do a quick recap on Ecclesiastes. And the way I can do that is by looking at verse 8. Verse 8 of chapter 12. Vanity of vanities, says Solomon, all is vanity. These are his words at the end of the book. I wonder if you can remember that you, whether you've seen these words before in his journal. And uh, I'm sure you all would say, yes, I've seen those words before. But do you remember that these were the first words he wrote to us? Just have a look at chapter 1, verse 2. After his introduction, he just simply said, Vanity of vanities, says Solomon. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That's how he started his book. And that's how he's finished his book. All is vanity. His first and his last words. Well, this literary technique is known as an inclusio. Whenever a writer begins and ends his composition by saying exactly the same thing, they reinforce that they do it to reinforce his main point. So why did Solomon use an inclusio? Why did he start with vanity of all vanities and finish with it? 
Because by beginning with that statement, what he has done and ending with it, what he has done is shown the structure of the book of Ecclesiastes and one of its main points. Do you have any idea what the main point of uh, Solomon's journal has been about? Besides Vanity of Vanities, where he started the Inclusio, look at Ecclesiastes 1.9. This is what he's been reinforcing all the way through his book, at least the first section of it. That which has been is that which will be. And that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. And so Solomon used that inclusio of vanity of vanities at the beginning and the end to to draw out the fact there's nothing new under the sun. As it was before, so it is now and so it will ever be. Vanity of vanities, he says. All is vanity, all the time. And therefore, he ends up right where he started his book. If you remember, the Hebrew word for vanity is Solomon's multi-use metaphor. He uses this metaphor all the way through his book to express the futility of a life being lived in a fallen world. Taken literally, the word, the Hebrew word means to, to breathe or as a vapour, like a, the steam rising out of a kettle. And we say, such is life. It's impossible to grasp that that steam and before you know it, it's gone. And that's life. But the beauty of the inclusio is that you should never think that the writer is just simply repeating himself. Yes, Ecclesiastes 12.8 does bring us back to the same point where he began, but hopefully now we're not the same people anymore. We've been through his books or his book. And what... Ecclesiastes has given us is a bigger perspective on life. Solomon has shown us how vain life is. So when we hear him make the same statement at the end of his book, we can say it strikes us with much greater force that yes, it is. It is vanity of vanities. You see, from Solomon's journal, we now know that work is vanity. There's nothing for us to gain for all our restless toil under the sun, he says. It's all vanity. It's all striving after the wind. He's also told us that wisdom, uh, human wisdom is, is vanity. All it does is increase our sorrow and our vexation, he says in Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 1.18. And whether we're wise or foolish doesn't even matter because in chapter 2 he says we're all going to die in the end anyway. We've come to learn through Ecclesiastes that pleasure is empty. Wine, women, song, parks, houses, vineyards, gold, silver, treasure. Ecclesiastes chapter 2 says there's nothing to be gained from them under the sun. It's all vanity. He even says in chapter 4 that power is useless. Having power is just vanity. He says in in chapter 5, money is vanity. Causes no end of trouble as we look after our possessions, which, by the way, we can lose in the moment's notice, in the twinkling of an eye being biblical. But he goes on to say, even if we could hang on to our money, Ecclesiastes 5.10 says it doesn't satisfy you anyway. It won't satisfy your soul having money. 
And then there was the last of all the vanities, which uh, we saw last time together, the vanity of death. Nearly all of us will endure the indignities of growing old. And we saw that last time in chapter 12. And after that, the final vanity, the final uselessness is returning to the ground from which we were made. Ecclesiastes 3.20 says, all go to the same place. All come from the dust and all will return to the dust. But in amongst all that, we've learned that in spite of the vanity of living under the sun and without God, in spite of the futility of living in a, a world that has fallen, we can still rejoice in, in life's many blessings. We learned in chapter 2 that Solomon encouraged us to eat and to drink and to find satisfaction in the work that you do. He's told us there's a time for healing. There's a time for harvesting. There's a time for laughing. There's a time for dancing. There's a time for loving. There's a time for making peace. All in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. There is time for these things. He told us to rejoice in the prosperity that God so richly gives us in Ecclesiastes 5 and 7. And he told us in chapter 9 to enjoy life with the one whom we love. I love that chapter. To enjoy life with the one with whom you love. There is joy in the world under the blessing only of a faithful God. Yet what Solomon mainly wants us to see is how meaningless life is without God. That was his purpose. How little joy there is under the sun if we leave the creator out of our universe. And so by the time we get to the end of Ecclesiastes, we have to admit that he's proved his case. One writer put it this way, he said, Nothing in our search has led us home. Nothing that we are offered under the sun is ours to keep. Vanity of vanities, it's all vanity. Yet interestingly enough, vanity doesn't get the last word in this book. And it doesn't get the last word in your life as a Christian. Now, Ecclesiastes might well have ended with chapter 12, verse 8, and it could have been a suitable summary of everything Solomon had said, but instead, Ecclesiastes closes with an epilogue that helps us to put the entire book into perspective. Now, I need to say here for clarity that verses 9 to 14 may have been written by another author. If you look at your word, you'll see that Solomon is speaking in verse 8, but when we get to verse 9, there's a shift. Solomon is now referred to in the third person. Now, it may well be that these verses were written by someone other than Solomon. The reality is I don't know. Here's something I do know, is that Satan would love nothing more than for me to spend the next 30 minutes trying to work out who wrote verses 9 to 14. We're not going to do that. Instead, we're going to look carefully at the scripture and we're going to realise that these verses affirm what Solomon said and it affirms the way he said it. So let's look at these verses as the inspired word of God, which it is, not whether we can work out who wrote the last verses. So let's get into verse 9. Up until now, Ecclesiastes has told us what Solomon has said all the way through the book. It's been what Solomon has let us uh, know. Now we're told in the epilogue how he said it. Verse 9, in addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge and he pondered, 
searched out and arranged many proverbs. The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. Now, I want to pause here because it's very important that we have a look at this because from these verses we can see a few things about Solomon's writing and the first one is that he had a logical clarity about his writing. He just didn't throw Ecclesiastes together, he constructed it as a work of literature. He opened up with a theme in chapter 1 verses 1 to 11 and then for the next six chapters or six and a half chapters he told us about the story of his quest to try and find the meaning of life. And after he got to chapter 6, then he helped us to know how to live for God in this vain and futile world by showing us the difference between wisdom and folly. And he did that in in chapters 7 to 11. (coughs) And then he ended, appropriately enough, by uh, talking talking to us about death and dying in chapter 12. And so after studying a matter, Solomon weighed up the conclusions carefully and then he arranged them in an orderly fashion. We may not always have seen the pattern behind that arrangement, but it's there just the same. And so he wrote with logical clarity. He also wrote with literary artistry. He sought to find words of delight for us. The American writer Tom Wolfe described Ecclesiastes this way, He said, the highest flower of poetry, eloquence and truth, the greatest single piece of writing I have known. In fact, in this book it's given us phrases like, also the sun rises and the sun sets and hastening to its place it rises there again. In chapter 1. In chapter 3 it says, to everything there is a season. Eternity in the hearts of men when we spent that time, the wonderful phrasing that God has placed eternity in our hearts. Casting your bread upon the waters, even though it is a little bit hard to comprehend sometime, that was, that's come out of chapter 11. In our last chapter about getting old, the almond tree blossoms. I love that for growing grey. The almond tree is blossoming. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, man does not know his time. Wonderful phrases, literary artistry that's lasted for a millennium, more, more than a millennium. And so he wrote with artistry. He also wrote with intellectual integrity. Because once he found the words of the light, it says that he, he wrote the words truthfully, correctly. You see, to be of real, a real spiritual help, this book, it's not enough to be clearly and st- clear and stylish and delightful words. It's not a, there's plenty of books that have that. But to be of a spiritual help, he must write truthfully. And if there's one thing we can always count on with Solomon, it was to tell us the truth. Not just the truth about God, but the truth about life in this fallen world. He told us the truth all the way through as he wrote his journal, telling us how futile it is to live under the sun. And Solomon never held back from telling us what life was like under the sun. And I thank the Lord for him doing so. Solomon wrote with clarity, he wrote with artistry, he wrote with integrity. And that's why his his journal has instructed our minds. It's touched our hearts, it's guided us through into the wisdom of God.
But knowing what Solomon said and how he said it in verses in these two verses, 9 and 10, it's not the be-all and end-all of Ecclesiastes. Yes, it's beautiful artistry, it's great poetry, but we still need to ask the question, why? Are these words of delight also words of purpose? If so, what was Solomon's reason for telling us about the vanities of life? Why did he even start? Well, praise God, we have clear purpose statement in verse 11. The words of wise men are like goads, and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. His words were like goads to us. The book of Ecclesiastes is like a goad. Do you know what a goad is? You probably should do if if the book of Ecclesiastes is a a goad. A goad is one of the tools of the shepherd's trade. A sharp stick that spurs a stubborn animal to, to get his attention or to keep it moving. It wasn't designed to injure the animal. It was always designed to inflict just enough pain to get his full cooperation. So by definition, Ecclesiastes should do the same thing for us. Its words may be pleasing, but they should also inflict a certain amount of pain to us. It's God goading us with a pointed stick to get our attention. Ecclesiastes is a goad to our conscience, making us uncomfortable enough to turn away from sin. The book of Ecclesiastes should have been a stimulus to your soul, steering you back, prodding prodding you into the right spiritual path, goading you, pointing that stick at you. You can even think of Ecclesiastes as a, a cattle prod. It is a goad. Solomon's words push us not to expect lasting satisfaction. I'm hoping that there's something you got out of it. There's no lasting satisfaction in money. There's no lasting satisfaction in pleasure. He goaded us, he prodded us to the point that the only goodness there is is in God. The book of Ecclesiastes has steered us away from foolish rage and mocking laughter. It's spurred us on to patience and contentment. <coughs> to humility and joy. It's even prodded us when we forgot about God because he prodded us and to remember our creator. And then the moment we begin to think that we'll live forever, he pokes us in the ribs with his goad and reminds us, you're going to die soon. I wonder if you've found yourself reacting to God's goad in this book or have you developed such a thick skin before God that you don't even feel the prodding of God anymore? Verse 11 of chapter 12 also compares Solomon's word word to well-driven nails. In other words, once a wise saying is driven into the mind, it stays there like a, a nail into a piece of wood. And those well-driven nails or those phrases stay there. Life may be a vapour. Even James says that in the New Testament. But those wise sayings, the wisdom can help us nail it down, giving us a foundation for our experience with these well-driven nails of, of wisdom from Solomon. 
And there are many well-driven nails, like too many to mention. But one, the two that I love the most is in, found in Ecclesiastes 4. Two are better than one. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. That's a wonderful nail that's driven into my mind and will always be there. In Ecclesiastes chapter 9, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, but time and chance happen to them all. Just a well-driven nail into my mind that is, is now stuck there. And I want you to notice that all these wise sayings, all these nails that have been driven into our hearts and our minds, all those things that have goaded us into action at the end of verse 11 are given by the one shepherd. Shepherd, one of the most noblest titles for God in the Old Testament. Not only in Psalm 23, but all the way through in Psalm 80, where he's called the shepherd of Israel. The words of wise men are like goads and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They are given by the one and only shepherd, God Almighty. See, Solomon's words are not merely the musings of some sceptical philosopher. They're part of the inspired, infallible, inerrant revelation of the Almighty God. Therefore, it's not enough to simply admire the artistry and the poetry. We need to respect their integrity. But more importantly, we need to submit to their authority. The authority of the Almighty God. As the shepherd of our souls, God has used Solomon's journal as he uses all the scriptures to prod us into spiritual action. And what Ecclesiastes says about the shepherd's words take on even greater force when we remember that our shepherd is also our saviour. Jesus Christ is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. The Lord Jesus Christ is the one who calls us away from the vanity of this life, the vanity of life without God. He calls us away to find joy and meaning in his grace. The shepherd You see, as Christians, we're not just living under the sun. We're living under the S-O-M. We're living under the Son of God who loved us and gave himself up for us. And so to read Ecclesiastes is to hear our shepherd's voice. And so the next verse gives us a shepherd's warning. Be very careful to listen to the shepherd here. Verse 12. But beyond this, my son, be warned. The writing of many books is endless and excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. See, even back in Solomon's time, there were libraries full of books. Today, more than a million new books are published every year. That's a staggering figure. You only need to go to Kurong to find out just how many books there are. It's staggering. But of the making of many books, there is no end. And studying even some of them is enough to wear anybody out. Now, I don't believe for a minute that Solomon is saying we should never read books or write books for that matter. There is a place for Christian discipleship in the life of our minds. 
But I want us to always remember, and the scripture does, that human wisdom and man-made philosophy are extremely limited. How many books have been written? Too many to count. But how little most of them teach us about the knowledge of God. How little most of them teach us the way to everlasting life. And you know what I'm going to say. By far, the most important book to study is the Bible. Please do not test God's truth by the many books written by men. Test men's books by the truth of God's word. It's only as we first listen to what God has said through his word that the other words that have been written that we can make sense of them or nonsense of them. We need to know what the Bible says. Don't test God's truth by the wearying study of all those books. I want you to test those books through God's truth. We need to make sure we're not like the person that Paul warned us about in the New Testament in 2 Timothy 3.7. This is what Paul said. He said, they are always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. You can learn till the cows come home, but unless you're reading the scriptures, you will never come to the knowledge of the truth. Be content with what the Bible says. Do not accept anything less. But more importantly, do not demand anything more. The shepherd has warned us about the the ceaseless study of books. Be content with the scriptures. Don't accept anything less. Don't demand anything more from them. And so we come to the end of Ecclesiastes. And it ends with a practical application of biblical truth. How then should we respond to all that's gone before in Ecclesiastes? What is the book's conclusion? You don't even have to second guess. The final words provide an ethical and eschatological conclusion. Look at 13 and 14. The conclusion... That's a good way to start a conclusion, isn't it? It doesn't leave you with any doubts. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep his commandments. Because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. What does it mean to fear God? After all, to fear God is the conclusion when all has been heard. We get so many different ideas of what it means to fear God. Pete was talking about the traditions of men and there are some traditions in some circles where they fear God because he's a a capricious God and he changes his mind all the time. Never know where he's going to do next. That's not what it's all about. To fear our God is to have have an attitude of reverence and awe towards him. And we do that because we love him, because we respect his power, because we respect his greatness. And so therefore we fear the Lord. 
The person who fears the Lord will pay attention to his word. The person who fears the Lord will not only pay attention, they will obey it. The person who fears the Lord will not tempt him by deliberately disobeying or playing with sin. Oswald Chambers said, The remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. To fear God is to honour him, to revere him, to worship him. At various points, Solomon has already told us to fear God. The first one was because of his his work is eternal. And he said, his work is eternal, so fear God in chapter 3. In chapter 5, he told us to fear God because God demands it. In chapter 7, he told us to fear God in times of adversity as well as prosperity. In chapter 12, he told us that if we do fear God, it will go well with us. And now we're told to fear God and to obey him. Why? Because one day we will stand in judgment before him. The translation I'm reading says uh, in, 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 verse, uh, in that verse, this applies to every person. The New King James says, Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind, which is a different uh, wording, but meaning the same things. In other words, fear God and keep his commandments because this is what life is all about. I've mentioned previously that one of the questions in the Shorter Westminster Catechism was what is the chief end of man? And I love this. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. I love it. But I think Solomon has a different Shorter Catechism. I think Solomon's answer to that question, what is the chief end of man, would be man's chief end is to fear God and keep his commandments. And if I was writing a catechism, that's what I would put first. The greatest thing in life is to come before the one true God in worship and fear and obedience. And whether you're ready to come before God now, or God forbid, you hope to avoid it, the truth is that one day every one of us will stand before God for judgment. How do I know that? Because Philippians tells me. Philippians chapter 2 verses 10 to 11. You know these off by heart. So that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And if you are a born-again believer sitting here this morning, you will bow before before Christ at the judgment seat of Christ. This is what it says in 2 Corinthians 5.10. We will be judged, as it says, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in his body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, that's a whole sermon on its own, and pastor has done that. 
But this is not a judgment for sin as Christ took that on the cross for us, which Pete has led us through this morning. That judgment of the born-again believers as we stand before Jesus Christ is not a judgment for the sin because Christ took that judgment upon himself. And we stand before him, as it says, so that we may be recompensed for the deeds that we have done in our body. And another section says to receive rewards or not receive rewards, depending on what you have done in your body. And so as Christians, we will sit before the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat. But if you sit here this morning and you have never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour, or you think you have and you're not obeying him or fearing him, then one day God will expose every secret sin at the great white throne judgment found in Revelation chapter 20 verse 11. He will bring every last deed to judgment. As it says in 1 Corinthians 4, 5, He will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. And what comes after that? The condemnation of the lake of fire. You will stand before the judgment seat. Whether you are a born-again believer to be recompensed for the things that we have done in our body or whether we are standing before him and every sin will be revealed, every secret, every dark place. The books will be opened if your name is not in the book of life, which it won't be because you're standing before the great white throne judgment, you will be condemned the second death, which is the lake of fire. But why does Ecclesiastes tell us about the final judgment here? Why does he mention it? Because it means that everything you do matters. You see, Solomon began and ended his spiritual quest by saying that everything is vanity. And he said all the way through, at least the first half, that without God there's no meaning, there's no purpose. Solomon kept asking, is this all there is? Isn't there more to life that I can see under the sun? He even said at one stage, if there's no God and therefore no final judgment, then what does it really matter? We might as well eat, drink and be merry because tomorrow we're going to die. Maybe you're thinking that way this morning that you don't realise that there is a, a, a God who will judge the world. But if there is a God who will judge the world, then everything matters. Everything matters that you do. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. So I want to tell you bluntly, I know it's getting on and you may be thinking about what's next, uh, where my meal's coming from, is my meal burning, forget about that. I want to tell you very bluntly, this Bible tells me that there is a God in heaven who rules this world and there is life to come after this life. One day the dead will be raised. Every person who has ever lived will stand before God for judgment. Christians at the Bema seat for rewards non-Christians for condemnation in the lake of fire, for eternity. Everything anyone ever did or said or thought has eternal significance. You see, the final message of Ecclesiastes is not that nothing matters. He's saying vanity of vanity. It's not that, it's that everything matters because there's a final judgment. 
what we did, how we did it, why we did it, will all have eternal significance. And the reason that everything matters is because everything in the universe is subject to the final verdict of a righteous God who knows every secret. And therefore, what matters to you as you sit here this morning, what matters most of all to you is the personal decision that you have made about Jesus Christ. Nothing else matters. If you're listening to the communion, that decision about accepting Christ's condemnation on the cross for ours is all that matters. Yes, Ecclesiastes ends with a warning of judgment and not a promise of grace. But thankfully we have the rest of the scriptures because this warning of judgment has the gracious purpose of pointing us to the gospel. If it's true that God will bring everything to judgment, then it's desperately important for us to make sure that we'll be found righteous on that awesome and momentous day. So even though he doesn't mention grace at the end, that judgment points us to where we should be, to have the grace that where, when it comes, we'll be found righteous in our God's sight. And there is only one way to be found righteous in God's sight, and that is to entrust your life to Jesus Christ. There is no other way. I don't care what anyone says about uh, other ways to Christ or other ways to God. This is the only way because the Scriptures say it. He alone has the power to save us from the wrath of God. The wrath of God is upon you until the righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ is covered, covers you with his righteousness. Jesus Christ came into this world, into the vanity of vanities, all is vanity. He came as a saviour. And like us, he suffered all its futility, all its frustration. But he did more. When the time is right, he took the judgment that we deserved by dying on the cross. But on the third day, he rose again, bringing life out of the grave. And Jesus will come again. I don't know when. Soon. Closer today than it was yesterday. And he will come again. And according to Romans chapter 2, God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. Even in Acts, it says, is what it says, that God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And when that day comes, everyone who believes in Jesus Christ will stand before the righteous judge and you will look into the the loving eyes of a saviour and we will be thrilled to bits. But if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be looking into the eyes of of a judge who is just about to condemn you to eternal lake of fire. So I ask you this morning, forget about lunch, forget about what you're doing this afternoon, what are you doing about yourself? What about you? It's very simple. John tells us in 1 John, it's very simple. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life.
Make sure you answer that question. Do you live under the S-U-N? Question mark. Or under the S-O-N? Only you can answer that. But one day you will stand before that judge and he will tell you. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Ecclesiastes that we've been through. For the fact, Lord, that it has been a goad that has pushed us in different directions to understand the meaning of life. And we've learnt, Lord, there is no meaning to life without your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. It's just vanity. It's just useless. It's just vapour. And then it's gone. But, Lord, your word tells us that the meaning of life is to fear God and to do his commandments, to worship him and obey to trust him and obey. That is the chief end of man. And so, Lord, as we close, I do pray for those who have never accepted the, uh, the offer of salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray sincerely that you would work in their lives to such a point that there will be no peace until they accept our Lord. Father, you can work in their lives. In fact, Lord, it's all you. I pray that you would reach into the lives of those who do not know you and uh, steer them and goad them in the right direction, Lord, that they may become children of God. And I ask it sincerely in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Amen.